The headlines this morning. Warnings about the huge damage to the world's economy unless actions taken to combat climate change. The scientific evidence of global warming caused by greenhouse gas emissions is now overwhelming. Seven years after it was first established, the Kyoto Protocol to tackle global warming has come into force. Gordon Brown and David Cameron have both been setting out their ideas on how to reduce the effects of climate change. But are either of them making environmental sense? The problem of climate change is both scientific and social. It brings together scientists and policymakers in identifying its causes and developing solutions. We might say the role of science is to identify problems, explain their causes, and suggest what might be done about them. By contrast, policymakers operate in a world where values influence actions and choices must often be made between alternatives. But it's not quite as simple as that. Very often, the roles of scientists and policymakers overlap. Scientists become involved in the policy process, and policymakers must be able to interpret scientific knowledge as a basis for action. Together, scientists and politicians must consider what is possible and what is desirable, what can be done as well as what should be done. I'm Andrew Blowers, Professor of Social Sciences at the Open University and a member of the course team. And I'm going to discuss some of these issues with both scientists and those concerned with policymaking. Let's start then with the nature of scientific knowledge and its relationship to policymaking. Professor Andrew Watkinson is a scientist and director of the UK's Living with Environmental Change Partnership. The basis for scientific knowledge is based on observation and theory, and it's the interplay between those two. In terms of knowledge, I suppose a lot of people would say that we work using hypotheses based on the best evidence that we have, and then testing that those hypotheses, those ideas, with experiment and with observation. How often science actually works like that, I'm not sure. I think I tend to fall into the paradigm um, group where essentially there's a body of knowledge, we explore that body of knowledge, and that essentially allows us to develop a world view, and we change that world view, we have a paradigm shift when the evidence becomes so compelling that we need to change, change our view. There is basically then, from what you're saying, a fairly well-defined scientific method? I think there is a well-defined scientific method. How often people are actually trained in it is another matter. Um, my experience is that people are trained very little in the actual scientific method. Mostly people just get on with the, the job, doing experiments, testing hypotheses, but without realising the philosophical background. One of the key elements about scientific knowledge is, of course, that it's controlled knowledge. Brian Wynne, Professor of Science Studies at Lancaster University. You've got to construct artificial circumstances, whether it's experiment, whether it's a computer model whatever it is, you've got to construct artificial circumstances to do that kind of controlled testing. And in that kind of case, you're always actually raising questions about the relationship between your artificial context of knowledge production and the real world in all of its greater complexity. And, you know, the global climate, we know very well that there are certain things which are excluded from climate models, like various feedbacks, Clathrates in the tundra, for example, which, you know, when warming occurs, will release more methane into the atmosphere with more warming, a positive feedback on climate change. 
which isn't included in the models because it's too difficult to include. So you've got uncertainties of that kind which are about having to produce knowledge in a controlled way and to be able to test it in some way. Right. Well, that's, in a sense, a kind of internal set of pressures among science. Another thing they have to do, though, is to speak a language which can be interpreted or understood, which Mm. is accessible to others. Is that a further limitation, do you think, on Mm. what science is actually professing in terms of its knowledge? Well, I think there are a whole variety of things. That's one of them. But there are several others. I mean, one of the one of the other more important ones, which you could say is an internal thing within science, but it's also partly a public and a policy thing, is that when you address any, you know, many environmental issues, even ones which are far, far less extensive and complex as climate change, you've nearly always got to synthesise different bodies of scientific research. Acid rain is a good example. You know, we've got atmospheric chemistry, atmospheric physics, you've got physiology of of vegetation like trees because it's about tree damage. You've got a whole range of different scientific disciplines have to be synthesised. And when that's done, it's inevitable in a way that various uncertainties and indeed contingencies in each of those scientific disciplines get left behind. And it's the policy need that's generating the need for synthesis. So the science as synthesised in that way to address a public issue like an environmental problem is always bound to be understating the uncertainties that are involved in the combination of those knowledges. Uncertainty is something that we have to grapple with and accept in the scientific process and, in also, uh, and also in the policy-making process. Uncertainty will always be there. As we look to the future, there is inevitably uncertainty about the level of greenhouse gas emissions, about the level of population, about a whole range of things. There may also be uncertainties in our understanding. And so we can never be absolutely certain. There may be some feedback process that means that climate change doesn't happen as quickly as we were anticipating, or there could be a feedback process that makes it more rapid than, than we expect. So yes, we have to deal with this issue of uncertainty. It is part of science. We can never be certain about anything. It's a very good example then, climate change, of what one might rather glibly call scientific discovery. I mean, some scientists make some observations, those observations add up to a, a set of circumstances. Ultimately, um, a major problem uh, is discovered. I mean, at what point... Does that discovery, as it were, become of more than purely scientific significance? I mean, could you tell us about that in terms of this climate change issue? When does it become of more than scientific interest? I think it became of scientific interest back in the 80s and 90s, because you've got to remember, if you go back to the 70s, we were thinking then we might be heading towards the next ice age. But at the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, when the... Um, IPCC process, the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change process started, it was then that we realised that the carbon dioxide concentrations were reaching a level where we were certainly going to be getting significant increases in temperature. And with that, I think that then engages society. Society has then to choose what to do about this scientific knowledge. So there, there comes a point, in a sense, when you've stopped exploring, you've stopped identifying things, and you're accumulating knowledge, that a consensus of some kind, one could say, exists among scientists. Mm. There, there, there seems to be an important point here, because there will always be those 
who are not shaped by that consensus, uh, who will continue to take a different view. And very often, if you look at um, other issues, that minority might actually, in the end, prove to be more right than the majority. I mean, how do you see that in terms of what now seems to be an overwhelming scientific consensus? Do we necessarily have to just accept that now? I think what the IPCC process has shown, it's become more and more confident as we've gone from the first assessment to the fourth assessment that climate change is occurring. That's the first statement that they would make. The second, that it is driven by human emissions of carbon dioxide. And the vast majority of scientists, the high 90%, believe that that is the case. Yes, there are sceptics who don't accept that for a variety of reasons. And it's quite right that they should continue to challenge. And I think if science is going to advance, you always need these people, the sceptics, to challenge the consensus view at the time. I think in the climate change arena, the scientists can provide the evidence upon which the policymakers have got to act. We need to sort of demonstrate the urgency of the issue. We need to demonstrate the uncertainty surrounding the issue. But ultimately, we are providing evidence upon which the policymakers have to act. Yes, we can be advocates. In some areas, we'll be having that advocacy role more strong than in others. But certainly we provide the evidence and the advocacy, but it's the policymakers that obviously that at the end of the day draw up the policy. So you recognise a problem for policymakers in trying to deal with the, the science or the scientific uh, predictions? Yes, they have um, a number of trade-offs to make because essentially the climate change one is obviously a very difficult one because one's dealing with something that's going to happen in the future. And that means one's got to look at the values, right, well, do we do deal with the problems now and to what extent do we deal with values that relate to um, life in the future? And that's a very tough call on politicians. There's a really important distinction which is often overlooked and confused between science as we think about it as like research front science and scientists involved in advising on various policy issues. They're often doing a lot more than advising. They're actually advocating and committed to particular views of the world. They then become, partly at least, promoters of particular points of view which aren't necessarily that consistent with what you might call the research front understanding of the issue in hand. Like I say, it doesn't mean the scientists have just made it up and you know, are stating what they wish to be true. They're actually doing it in disciplined ways and nature and the evidence is playing a role, important role in shaping what they're saying. But it doesn't mean to say that it isn't a selective perspective on the greater complexity of the issues that are there. That brings in the question of, I suppose I'd call it objectivity, you might want to give it a different name, but science on the whole we expect to be reasonably objective. Mm. But when you start to talk about the way it's framed, then it is not perhaps quite so objective, it's selective, yeah. It's uh, certain things are identified. Is that the scientists that are doing that, well, the impression I get is it's the pressures under which mm. they operate well, take the way in which the IPCC's models of climate change and the human impact upon it were originally formulated in the early 90s. The only ways in which they could scientifically model and do long-term predictions of the global climate was to operate with one greenhouse gas. What that allowed the scientists to do, perfectly normal science, was to then do the modelling. 
if they tried to have about 20 or more different greenhouse gases in the models, they couldn't have done it. But the consequence of that, which nobody designed, was that each emission of greenhouse gas into the atmosphere was then defined as equivalent. You know, 20 grams of carbon dioxide with one gram of methane, which would be equivalent in terms of their greenhouse warming potential. But then on that basis, if you're thinking globally about policy, you're then talking as if a certain volume of methane generated from rice farm, which might be keeping people alive as the only subsistence way of producing food in Asia, is the equivalent of the same amount of methane being generated by landfills in affluent countries like North America or Britain. Now, should those be being equated? Well, the scientists didn't decide that we should treat subsistence living and degeneration methane as if it's no more important than some kind of vast overconsumption on our part in the affluent West. But that was a consequence of the way that they'd done the science. And it's partly then about the lack of awareness that gets built into the relationship between the science and the policy. Because some of those kind of assumptions which are built into the scientific modelling, they're not explicit, they're not evident to the policymakers. Then there is the issue, obviously, of having to communicate complicated things where you've then got to make judgments on the hoof very often about what's the most important thing to get across in this particular occasion and, and what can be left aside. And very often at that point, it's the uncertainties that get left aside and it's the key basic message, if you like, you know, that there is human-induced climate change, whatever it might be, that gets to be important. Andrew, just coming back then to the question of the relationship between science and policy, how significant would you say science is now in terms of being within government and influential and having access to policy making? I think science has become more important in policy over the last 10 years. I think we are seeing a change in the way that science is, is dealt with. And I think one of the signs of that is the number of scientific advisors within government. Most people will be aware of the fact that there's a chief scientific advisor to the government, um, but rather few will be aware now that nearly every government department has a chief scientist. And that chief scientist has access to the policymakers at the highest level and will be questioning the evidence based for their policies throughout. So I think that's one of the factors which indicates that science is much having a much greater role within policy than it used to. So that they have this influence they're inside now, but for a long time one could look at other elements of society, notably business, and say they had privileged access to government policymakers. I mean, there may not be a conflict between the two, but I mean, where, how do you think science lines up in terms of those, what I would call, power relationships? I don't know. The answer to that question is a very good question. So what is the relative influence of, say, business or science or the public on, on policymakers? Clearly, politicians have to take account of all those different pressure groups on them. I think the scientist now has a more distinct voice than they used to. They, there aren't many scientists in a lot of the government departments, so I think to have chief scientists, to have research budgets, as many of the departments do, so that they can commission their own research, does now allow a more effective 
delivery of the evidence base that's undoubtedly required for policy making. I, I don't think I can sort of stress the importance enough. Essentially, the scientists are delivering the evidence base upon which policy makers can then make decisions and essentially draw up their policies. Seems to me there probably has been a moment now when there is, can I put it this way, more confidence among scientists. Do you perceive that scientists perhaps have become more confident of their role vis-a-vis policy? And maybe at the same time there has been more trust placed in them by politicians and the public that they represent so that their, their actual position is considerably stronger now. I think perhaps policymakers are more trustful of, of scientists. They, they recognise the value of their input into the policy process. But I think also it's scientists like myself that have also become much more confident about engaging with policymakers. I think if you go back 10, 20 years, many of us would have found it very difficult engaging with policymakers. I've found it certainly in my own career as I've moved from straight biological sciences through into environmental sciences that I've found that in that environmental area there are a huge range of issues that the policymakers want to interact with the scientists on. And I've gained the confidence to interact with those policymakers. I enjoy it and am really keen to do more. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.